Hello and welcome to Take My Advice, I'm not using it. My name's Ollie Henderson and thanks for all the messages following last week's pod with Will Page. I'm glad so many of you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. This week we've got another fantastic guest. Glenn Elliott is the founder of Reward Gateway, a SaaS HR tech business, which two weeks ago sold for the third time, taking the total value of the sales to well over half a billion dollars. Glenn founded the company in 2006 and grew it over 12 years to over 400 staff, servicing over 2,000 clients in six different offices around the world. He then stepped down in 2017 and proceeded to write a book about his experience called Build It, a Rebel Playbook for Employee Engagement, in which he shared everything he'd learned about people and how to get the best out of them. He's now entrepreneur in residence at Tenzing Private Equity, and his job is to help their portfolio companies grow through advising founders and mentoring Tenzing's team. You'll hear us talk about what Glenn's learned from his experience scaling a tech company, how a decade of flexible work contributed towards growth, why the notion of permanent employees is a fallacy, and how even after the success he's achieved, he still suffers from imposter syndrome. Big thanks to Rory Shedden for introducing me to Glenn. He's an incredibly impressive guy, but also genuinely humble, and I'm really grateful for him giving me the time for the podcast. I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to his insights. As ever, please rate the podcast and subscribe and check out my newsletter, Future Work Life, in which I'll be writing an accompanying piece today. Now, in my research, I've seen that Glenn lives across a few different places. So I started the conversation by asking where he was joining us from. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm at home in Berlin in Germany. Yeah, I asked because I, I was doing a bit of research and I saw that we share a mutual love of three different places, London, Berlin and Ibiza. So I wasn't ah, sure where you'd be. Nice. Yeah, three of the best places on earth, I think. Yeah, yeah. I spent—I mean, I spent 28 years in in London until last year, and then I came out to live in uh, in Berlin. And um, yeah, I've been a regular island hopper to Ibiza for a long time. So yeah, very nice. Yeah. Well, I I had my stag do in Berlin and got married in Ibiza. So uh, oh wow, that's a, that's a great one day. Choice. I would in uh, in hopping between those locations. It's great. <laughs> I was interested in your route through your career. You started within a, a corporate environment and then started up two businesses, one of which grew significantly. And now you've exited and you're working with a private equity firm. So describe that career path for me. What did you learn from corporate life that you were able to take into a startup? Um, so, I mean, yeah, I did, uh, yeah, I did nine, nine and a half years at, at BT, British Telecom, um, where I was very happy for the most of it, actually. Um, you know, it's a, I, I kind of did, did, the, did the thing that people often do, you know, you finish, or you certainly did back then, you finished university, went hunting around for a, a graduate program, you know, some big, corp, big safe corporate with a graduate program. Um, the first off, job I got offered was at, at Logica, who were then a big IT consultancy. And, um, but unfortunately, the job they offered me was in Logica Defense. And I went for a site visit. I didn't fancy making missile guidance systems for a living. <laughs> um, so I turned that down and I went to work at BT. Um, but you know, ultimately, I, I realized you know BT was a nice place with nice people, um, and it was a, even though it had been downsizing massively over the ten, you know, the previous sort of ten years, it was still a you know a place where you could have a long term career. Um, but I realized ultimately, you know, when you're in an organization of 110,000 people, it doesn't really matter if you're there or not, or certainly didn't matter if I was there or not at the level I, I, I was. So I couldn't really make an impact. But I learned some really good things there. You know, I, I remember I had a great boss there for a long time called. Um, Chris Lawrence, and you know he 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 did his very best to chisel off some of the rough corners on me on kind of you know interacting with other people and sending polite emails and not accidentally antagonizing the department next door with um some carelessly worded uh thing that I'd sent um so yeah yeah i had a, I had a great time there, and I think 
you know, when I took some of that into my first business, which was a marketing and design agency, because um, I'm a software engineer, so I can, I, you know, I can, I can, I could make websites back then, probably can't now. Um, and uh, but also, there's an awful lot that I didn't learn there. You know, you, you don't run your own P and L when you work in a corporate. So you know, yeah. you know the 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 detail of that and the feeling of intense distress when you wake up at four in the morning worrying that you might not make payroll and there's 20 people who might yes. not, you know, make their mortgage payments as a result of, of you not making payroll. Um, yeah, you don't learn that in the corporate. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very different type of stress, isn't it? Yeah. And and that that first startup, the agency, you know, you, you, you mentioned a couple of things there which you learn very quickly. You have to learn very quickly about running your own business. Ultimately, you moved on to another business after that. What what did and didn't work within that first startup? Well, it's a marketing. We started off making websites, and then we expanded into you know branding and print media. Remember print media, uh, and then marketing consultancy and all sorts of stuff. Got it to about twenty people, about a million turnover. So if you do the maths, it doesn't really work. You're living hand to mouth because you know keeping twenty people alive on a million pounds a year it doesn't really work. So living from hand to mouth, what doesn't work? It's a consultancy. Um, a marketing agency um, so you're selling time uh, and you know it's, it's really difficult you know stroke impossible to scale time in that way um, it's also a massively oversupplied and commoditized market even then I mean it's, ter- it's, it's it's even worse now 20 years later but even back then I mean you know we had we had nine competitors in our building when I ran that agency <laughs> so then, I'm not even t- you didn't even have to go on the street just in the building we had nine competitors Whereas in my next business, we barely had nine competitors in the whole of the United Kingdom, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's massively supplied, and you know every, everyone's got an opinion about design, you know. So um, that's that's an interesting. But I learned a lot there. Um, I don't know. I learned, learned a lot about people, about client management, about money management, about cash, about payables, receivables, you know, about getting the money in. I mean, it, and and bidding and all that kind of stuff. I learned loads and loads of good stuff. But ultimately. You know, I realized that when you're running a consultancy, you're giving your best ideas to somebody else that will then hopefully make money out of them. And I really wanted to have a product business um, where, you know, we could build a product and we could sell it more than once um, and and we could scale from there. I didn't really fully understand the ramifications of what it all meant or or what it would lead to. And I would never, if you told me how big it would eventually get, I would never have believed you. I would have thought you were, you know, insane. Um, but, uh, but the principles of it, I wanted. Yeah, and, and it's, I suppose it seems di- a divergent idea going from that into your business, which essentially focused on employee engagement. Now, it was that? Did you end up doing that by design, or did you fall into it by accident? No, I mean, everything in my life I've fallen into by accident, really. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the you know what I'd learned by, by, the, by the time I'd done sort of six, seven years of running the marketing design agency. You know, I, I knew how to build websites, knew how to service customers. We knew how to do marketing, build brands. Like, you know, we, there's a, a set of things that I that I of skills that I'd learned, uh, which was interesting actually, because when I walked away from that agency, I kind of I, I officially sold it to my business partner. But the reality is, I gave it away for next to nothing. Um, but the story sounds nice if we say that you sold it. Um, but I, and for a while, I was really troubled by that, thinking I was walking away from the last seven years of my life and all that hard work. But I realized that the val- the real asset was everything that was in my head, everything that I'd learned, and you couldn't, and that would come with me. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, fir- the first, I guess what I'd learned over seven years of running that business is for any business to, to succeed, 
really and deliver its true potential, you've really got to have your people and your team on your side and you've got to have your team connected to what you're doing. The good thing about running a marketing design agency is it's really tough. So you can't really afford to have half the, you know, if you've, got, if you've only got 20 staff and you're in a hyper-competitive market, barely, barely breaking even, you can't afford to have half the team gazing out the window wanting to go home. Yeah, you kind of have to have everyone, you know, understanding what we're trying to do this week, understand what we're trying to do this year, and and really try to deliver for the customer. So you can't really afford employee disengagement. Or you can't afford much of it. Um, so I kind of understood those principles back then, even though I might not have known the full te- the, you know the full terms for them. So when I kind of stumbled upon the idea of a, of a business that would be an employee benefits, which is you know one small building block of employee engagement, I was kind of intrigued by that, and and that's what mm. I did. Clearly, the subject of employee engagement resonated for the reasons you outlined. Do, do you think your personality and approach lent itself to that business? Because it's been incredibly successful. So there must have been a fit there. I guess maybe, but I think also I think my personality and, and stuff developed over time, you know, as I right. learned. So, I mean, when I think back to, you know, how I was 13 years ago, I can only remember occasional flashes of it. Fortunately, because most of it, I think, oh my God, I was a complete idiot. I didn't, you know, I knew nothing. Um, So, you know, I think, I I think, I mean, there were some principles in my personality. You know, my my father always taught me to, you know, be kind to people and and be good to people. And I mean, things that a good parent you would hope would teach you, you know, treat people like you'd like to be treated yourself, which are frankly the fundamentals of employee engagement. I mean, it's not rocket science. Be honest, be truthful. so there's some principles there, but I think, you know, I developed very much over time. I mean, you know, I became kind of, you know, people call an expert in employee engagement, but I mean, I certainly didn't start there. If you'd seen me 15 years ago and mentioned employee engagement, I'd have no idea what you were talking about. So I guess I've never been, maybe one of my core principles, I've always been curious about stuff and quite keen to learn. And I've never seen who I was in the past to be, something that you know that like stops me from being something different in the future um so maybe there's a personality trait there was there never a sense of imposter syndrome because i've certainly experienced this i'm sure other people listening have as well when you enter a a market you've not worked in before there is definitely a case of blagging your way through certain things and you can come up across people who clearly know much more about it now you might say in your case you were a product person, you understood the technology, you understand the value that could bring to somebody working within that space rather than necessarily being an employee engagement expert. But there must have been times where you thought, oh, God, I'm out of my depth here. How am I going to get through this? Look incredible. Uh, I suffered from imposter syndrome and felt out of my depth every hour of every day for the last 15 years. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I never, it, it, I, all through my career at Reward Gateway and also the agency before it, I, I thought that I was making a mess of it and so and every and every other CEO would be doing it properly and I was just making it look really hard because I because mm. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought that all the time. And I think um yeah, that's just something that I live with. So I I totally see that. Um I totally see that see that all all the time. But I think one of the things about whilst I suffered from that personally, it didn't, you know, it didn't affect the fact that I thought this market needed something different, and that was the thing that we were providing. Because so we, whilst we had, when we launched in that part of the employee benefits market back in two thousand and six, there was half a dozen competitors already there, and three of them were actually departments or divisions of um, high street banks, so really, really well funded, big names. 
Um, but I, I, you know, I, I saw clearly in my own head that how they were doing it was wrong, and mm-hmm. it wasn't the approach that I that I thought the market would adopt to. And you're right, you know, everyone said we would fail. I can remember the CEO of a really big, huge um, tech company in our space. Not, the, not with exactly the same product, but the close one. You know, when uh, he he when asked, asked to comment on our launch in the magazine, he said they'd be busted in six months. Um, he went he went on to become a really really close friend. I spoke to him just yesterday, actually, a really <laughs> close friend. Um, and um, we you know we had a really good business relationship and personal relationship for years later. Yeah, but everyone said we but everyone said we would fail. Um, for mm-hmm. years, I mean, I, I remember in around year three, I was trying to get close to another business in Milton Keynes that was quite big for, compared to us at the time because I thought they might buy us in the future. And, in a, you know, and I, had a, I had a sort of supporter and a sponsor there who was on the board who thought we were a really good bet. And then I remember doing you know, proposals and all sorts of stuff about how they could acquire us. And the board just laughed it out and said it was ridiculous and that you know, wow. we, we were going nowhere. And now we're probably yeah. four times the size that they are. Yeah. So... I think I think imposter syndrome uh, is not incompatible with entrepreneur vision and drive. They're probably two yeah. different things. And I'm interested that now you spend a lot of time, your time mentoring people, and I guess those experiences and also being able to speak openly about this stuff is really useful for people. Because just look at LinkedIn; it is a message of how well I am doing. You know, everybody talks about their successes very seldom do you see people being really real about how bloody difficult it is out there or what a struggle that it's been just to pay the bills or break even with their business and then look it's fine you've got to be positive positive about this stuff and as you say as an entrepreneur there is an inherent positivity required in order to succeed but when i've read your book which we'll talk about a bit later and listen to you talking about this stuff it, it is refreshingly honest i wonder a whether you were that honest at the time or is this this something that you can look back with hindsight and be honest about and also how you communicate that to the people you work with now that you might mentor well i think it's interesting mentoring mentoring is a great example of my imposter syndrome then uh, because about uh january i set up tenzing where i work now tenzing private equity i set up their first mentoring program and i was absolutely terrified of doing it because i was convinced that i was the world's worst mentor and i had no idea how to mentor anybody so i start googling tips for mentors and all sorts of stuff and i you know i was just convinced that i just didn't know what i was doing um anyway it's been it's been fine um uh so i still suffer from imposter syndrome daily now um i think the thing about you know there's a difference between being relentlessly positive and believing that what you're doing has a place in the world and should work. And should, yeah, I think, you know, the, mm. the truth is that business is really, really tough. It's really bloody. There are probably more bad days than good days often. And it's at its very best of roller coaster. Yeah. And, but interestingly, yeah. you know, all the best moments when I think back to, when I think back to my 12 years at Reward Gateway and I think, you know, what are the meaningful moments they were all around disaster and things that went wrong. You know, I can remember, you know, I can remember losing a really big pitch at Santander that we were really, really excited about. And we were told that our product just did not look good enough. And we were devastated. And it and it caused a month mm. of frenzied product and technical work that produced like a new, completely new version of the product, which, you know, which was amazing. And the same thing happened about um, three years later with another another one of our products. So all, you know, all the best um, moves forward are associated with things that didn't work out. And I think 
I probably learned at some point in the last 13 years, I learned that I, I noticed that most people aren't honest about about business life. They pretend it's all fantastic and stuff and they don't talk about the truth. And I learned that if you're really honest about it, suddenly everyone's guard comes down and the conversation massively improves. You know, I remember going for lunch with another CEO yeah. about six years ago of a, a business in a completely different sector, but we knew each other through friends of friends. And we sat down, you know, for lunch at Soho House in in, in London. And I, I said, how's things going? And he said, oh, yeah, everything's amazing. Everything's amazing. And, he, you know, he gathered on for five minutes about how great everything was. And they said, how about you? And I said, oh, I had the worst fucking year. It's just awful. And I kind of, you know, told him several things that had, you know, everything that had gone wrong. And his whole demeanor just changed. His shoulders went down. And suddenly he started telling me about all the things that he was struggling with. And we had a really great lunch, you know. Yeah. And I think it's that thing about, you know, I guess having the confidence to be vulnerable is really helpful. Um, Because most of it, you know, if you're doing something, if you're doing something really worthwhile, then you're doing something innovative. And then it's by definition, it hasn't been done before. It's not going to be easy. You know what I mean? I mean, we all read lots of, or many of us read lots of books, but there isn't a manual for often for what you're doing because it hasn't been written yet. Um, so it's going to be messy because you're going to be, you know, trying things out and things aren't going to work. I mean, people look at Reward Gateway now and think it's a sort of, you know, huge success story and, you know, it's a kind of juggernaut in HR tech. But actually, when you were inside it, there was, you know, for every 100 things we tried, 50 didn't work. The only real difference is we kept trying 100 things all the time. And yeah. that's really where the success yeah. comes from. That's the true value of resilience, isn't it? The, the resilience to get up and, and, and try again, and be, be willing to fail occasionally, but ultimately keep on trying and support each other along the way. Within that environment, you must have had a close-knit team to be able to say, you know, it, it, if you don't get it right the first time, that's okay. Well, the thing is, yeah, and I think even it's not even fail occasionally, it's fail regularly. Ollie. I mean, you know, you're going to, if you're only failing occasionally, you're not doing, you're not, being that innovative you know innovation mm. by definition has to have a significant chance of failure otherwise it's not it's just this, it's just something someone else has already done it's not innovative yeah so yeah. you know whether you're and, and, and it's not just about product it's about sales like you know the truth is no one knows perfectly how to do sales b2b sales right you have a run about best practice and all sorts of stuff and there's loads of good things you can do but everyone's got to find out the, the right way to sell in their market, in their context at this moment this year, right? Given what's what's going on in their market. And that is a process of constant iteration and trying things out. And, you know, when I look at successful sales teams, they haven't got some absolute genius, you know, sales mastermind at the top of them. They've actually normally got a really great open leader who encourages loads of experimentation, who supports people, and they've got really great open communications and they've got very low ego. Yeah, and that's what makes a great. You know, that's that's how a, a team of people can iterate to figuring out what is great for sales and in, in that business in that market. Um, so yeah, it's all about change. And I think you know, yeah. yeah, the thing about resilience, you know, I don't know how people think about that word resilience. Like, do they think of do they visualize like some you know army commando kind of like you know battling through? I mean, resilience sometimes is exhaustion. You know, I mean, I can remember sitting on the floor of our Boston. So Reward Gateway USA used to be based in Boston in a WeWork office for about a year and a half. And I can remember sitting on the floor of that office with the global sales director, Shelley Lavery, by my side, a pair of us 
no shoes on, tracksuit, absolutely, absolutely knackered from about from the last three weeks, whatever we'd been doing. And, you know, and we were like, fucking hell, this is really hard. And so resilience hasn't got to look like mm. courageous and beautiful. It's, sometimes it's messy and tiring and dirty, but it's, but, you know, it's, it's just about getting up the next day or maybe three or four days later after having a few days off and trying again, not being, mm. you know, not stopping. Um, but it's not always pretty. And actually on, the, on that point, so, so where's the line to burning out? I'm certain that during your career at Reward Gateway, there would have been points where if you had to define it by any measurement, you would have been burnt out. So with the benefit of hindsight, would you change the way you work during that period? Is it even possible to achieve that level of success without burning out? Oh, that's interesting. Well, it's always, I think it's always a bit, um, you know, I'm really lucky. I've been really successful and business has sold three times and I'm, I'm now not a, share, not a shareholder finally. Um, so it's a bit rich to kind of go back and say, oh yeah, I do it all differently when actually, you know, sitting from a position of privilege where it's kind of all worked out. I think the truth is, you know, the person that, you know, I, I do generally work work till I can't work anymore and then I kind of bounce and have to have time off. I think, you know, the way I approach my new my job now is I'm much more measured, you know, in how I do in how I do this job. And I'm much more um, you know, I I'm I'm not always on. I don't have my I don't have my work email and Slack on my phone. You know, I, I keep my work my work life and my home life separate. Yeah. I only I work four days a week at the moment. I've got an ambition to work three. Um I never work on weekends. So I'm different. I'm different now, but I also I'm conscious sometimes that you know it's easy for me to do that. You know, I've I've got the I've got the mortgage paid for already, so I can I can take that luxury, and not everyone else can. I think the you know I used to encourage my team to like every and when I say my team, I mean the whole company to leave early on a Friday because I used to see people on a Friday afternoon you know, slumped in front of their keyboard when we used to go to offices, looking exhausted. And I think that, you know, the difference in technology from when I started my career back in 92, I got my first job in 1992, um, to, to, even, to even a year ago before the pandemic, you know, it was a huge difference between, you know, email being something, you know, email being the common thing that you did at work to like, you know, having multiple message streams. I mean, when my computer dings, I can't work out which app it is. It takes me five minutes to find the message because it can mm. be WhatsApp, Signal, Slack, email, <laughs> iMessage, text, and what the fuck is it? And it's it's exhausting. And then I think the pandemic and us working from home and Zoom, which is an amazing piece of technology, but it's it's brutal in how it sucks up our energy. Um, and I, I personally, I, I did too much zooming in the last twelve months. I pulled my Zoom stats off um, a couple of weeks ago, and, and it was obscene. I forget it was like one hundred and thirty odd thousand minutes or something. It's basically equated to eighty four percent of my working wow. day over a year in Zoom. And yeah, I, I, you know, it's tough. And, and on that, I know when we've spoken, we've talked about this idea. Certainly, what a lot of people still believe that it's impossible to replace the level of creativity that you might get sitting in the same room as people regularly. I hear this a lot. We, we hear from those employers who are desperate to get people back in the office, which thankfully are fewer and fewer as the months go on, it seems. But many of them will make the argument, well, look, we've got to get this team in the same place. We just don't function as well when we're not in the same place. Now, your business was based globally. You had your executive team based globally. And many of your team based in different countries. 
So is it true that you just can't be as creative unless you're sat in the same room? It's interesting, you know, like I don't want to sort of like dismiss anyone else's experience because that's their experience, you know. Uh, all I know is from in 2010, Reward Gateway Australia opened and that kind of like, you know, that broke. So when we started Reward Gateway back in 2006, we were obsessed about being on a single floor. We were terrified to break onto two floors of a building because we thought we'd get a two floor culture. I remember we st- it was ridiculous how much time we spent trying to stay on one floor. And then eventually we broke up the three floors of a building in, in London. And then in 2010, we opened Reward Gateway Australia. In 2012, we opened Reward Gateway New York. About 2015, we opened a development, we bought a business that gave us a development center in Plovdiv, Bulgaria, which then expanded into our um, BR back of whole back office. And today, more than half of the Reward Gateway team work in Bulgaria. It's the biggest, our biggest site by far. Uh, and then we've also added like places like Melbourne, Australia, and Birmingham. So for many, many years, I've, I've not had the luxury of having everyone in one building or in one place. And for many, many years, mm. the Reward Gateway team, the wide, the 440 people who work there, have had to work cross geography, cross time zone in video conferencing. So it's just it's just our normal. So. Like, have we been creative? Hugely creative. The product's fantastic. It's years ahead of the rest of its market. Clients love it. The business is hugely successful. You know, maybe someone would say, wow, it would be even more successful if you'd all be in the same room, you know. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I, I never felt, um, I never felt a lack of creativity in that business. And I think, you know, the C, the, I stepped down as CEO back in 2018 and I, uh, I, um, I found this wonderful man called uh, Doug Butler to be my successor, and he's taken the business on to you know amazing places since I left. And you know, Doug Butler is he lives in San Francisco, uh, and Reward Gateway has zero staff in San Francisco. In fact, we have zero staff on the west coast of America. So he lives literally the one like part of the world where we have nobody, and yet he is the most connected mm. CEO that I that I have access to in my life. Like, I mean, he is he he. He knows what more of the people are doing and there's more access to them uh, and they have more visibility of him than any other CEO that I know. And I think it's because, you know, communication and connectivity and leadership, is, it's, a, it's a set of tools and practices and it's a, it's a, it's a you know, it's a, it's a thing that you, you do rather than the place that you are. Um, I mean, when I was in my latter years, latter time as CEO, I would occasionally get someone saying, are you in the office, Glenn? You know, you get a Slack message saying, are you in? And I would reply saying, in where? Because we've got nine offices. Like, where are you? <laughs> you know, like, you know? Um, and and sometimes ex- like investors and external people might, might they get kind of satisfaction from knowing the CEOs in the office. But I would point out that if I was in an office, I wouldn't yeah. be in the other, I wasn't in the other eight by definition, you know? So which office do you want me to be in? Yeah. And which floor of the office? It's, you know, and I think, you know, I, I used to be able to connect yeah. with, you know, 12 people in Reward Gateway across five countries in in four hours of meetings or Slack. So I've never felt it yeah. being a, a blocker, really. I wonder whether you you might have been a early proponent of this way of working. And it sounds like Doug has the characteristics of a CEO that operates well in, in what many people are seeing as a sort of new new world of business. But it's only likely to be more in demand, those skills, as things evolve over the next few years, because it's, there are, as I said, very few companies now in which, first of all, 
the team is going to be in 100% of the time. And also people are starting to wake up to the idea that there's talent in many different places and and being able to access those those things is is fundamentally a good thing. And by, by definition, that means you will often not be in the same location as those people. You know, yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, Reward Gateway has had flexible working, truly flexible working for, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years. So, you know, when when I was CEO, the policy was really simple. When you wake up in the morning, whoever you are, you decide where you want to work that day based on what you've got to achieve and what you've got to do. And it might be the bed, the cafe, the hotel, the office, someone else's office, anywhere you want. Just you decide where you're going to work today based on what you've got to do. That's the policy. It's very simple. And um, I think, you know, there's still some things that surprised even me in that time I was there. Like when we bought we bought um, a development uh, house that had the 12 staff in Bulgaria um, and uh, they had one member of staff, a developer in Portugal. And I remember doing the acquisition. I was like, well, he'll have to go because like we don't have staff in Portugal. And the, fortunately, the person who was selling it to me, who became our head of product and a really good friend, uh, he said, no, no, Glenn, you've got to give him a chance. He's he's a great developer. It, it, trust me, it works. I'm like, I don't even know where fucking Portugal is. And I was like, okay, well, fair enough then. Well, we'll give it six months and see what happens. And uh, that guy, Miguel, is still, is still at Reward Gateway today, uh, still living in Portugal. And he's one of the top, most popular developers that everyone wants to work with. Uh, and yeah. I've never, I've never, I couldn't tell you what he looks like. I, I don't know if he's got black hair or blonde hair. I mean, you know, but I know that he's, I've spoken to him on Slack plenty of times. I feel like I have a relationship with him. He, you know, he loves his job. He builds great products for people and he's happy. And, you know, I think similarly, we had a, um, a, product, a product manager called uh, Norberto, who's actually was also Portuguese uh, by coincidence. And his wife is a nurse. She wants to go back to Portugal. And he went with her and uh, he said, can I, you know, carry on doing my job from Portugal? I'm like, I don't know. Do you think you can do it? He said, I'll give it a try. And he's still there now, still there today. And he's he's one of the most popular team leaders. And yet his team don't work with him. I'm not in the same place. So I kind of, you know, I don't really buy it, to be honest, this whole thing about being in the same place. And I think if you're obsessed about your team being in the same place, Mm -hmm. surely you're going to have to make peace with having a pretty small company, a pretty small team, because... Like it doesn't particularly scale, does it? I want all my staff in one room where I can see them. They don't really scale that far. Yeah, I think also that the idea, idea about being able to see them, which often people people do say that still, as though that is the measurement. Well, like, the funny thing is, I can see them. I can see you now. You know, we've got you on a video call. I can see you. Yeah, and it's like you know, would this would this be manifestly different if we were in the same room? I mean, you know, you could give me a biscuit, but I mean, I'm not sure it would be that for me personally. Maybe I'm just too used to this. It wouldn't be that different. Let's discuss or dispel another notion. So I've read something you've written about the misanoma, I guess you might say, which is permanent employee. Uh, Explain to me what you mean by that. And also maybe sort of expand on it, the idea of a chief editing officer. I like the sort of turn of (laughs) phrase you've used. How do those two things relate? Okay, so so my first confession is this is not an original Glenn idea, really. Um, so Reid Hoffman, who's the founder or co-founder of LinkedIn, he wrote a paper which got published in the Harvard Business Review probably about a decade ago. Um, and it was called something like Two of Duty, the New Employee-Employer Contract. Uh, and it was, you know, my summary, a very imperfect summary of that paper is about saying, you know, when you hire someone, you should hire them for a, a military term, a two of duty, something like, you know, like, so like, Ollie, come, come join us for, you know, 
and like let's agree what you're going to achieve over a reasonable period of like you know i don't know one two three years and then somewhere through this period we'll we'll agree how you you know are you loving it are you enjoying it and is there another true of duty you can see yeah so that you know you you're you're um you're um yeah, so like, what are you here to do? And it's also something I also re- reinforced from uh, Patty McCord at Netflix. So Patty, Patty McCord uh, was the chief talent officer, chief HR officer at Netflix from when it was founded to about five, six years ago. And I've met her several times and we became friends as I was writing my book. You know, and she told a story of, you know, the Netflix culture that they created there was really about like having, you know, for, for them, culture was about having great teams of people doing amazing work together. And you know, she tells a story of the 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 guy who who built Netflix Search. You know, he was a he was like one of Silicon Valley's like top expert engineers in search. And he came to Netflix when they almost had no search facility. And um, he spent you know some time a year, two years, whatever, building this incredible search infrastructure and this search engine. And then it was done. And he said to Patty, "What do I do now?" And she's like, "I think you should go build search for somebody else," because. You know, that guy, what he's, you know, his huge gift to the world was being this worldwide amazing expert in building massively scalable search engines. Yeah. And she's like, what, what am I going to do? Ask him to do some work faffing around on the front end or build some reporting for management? I mean, like, his job was done, you know. And I think what's interesting about, you know, this whole thing about jobs is, you know, we have, um, and I've seen it in my own job here at Tensing, actually, we have this sort of like, antiquated binary notion of like fixed term contracts or temp jobs and permanent jobs. And, uh, and I've been told before, Oh, hire them on a fixed term temporary contract. Cause then you can get rid of them if you don't need them. I hate the term, get rid of people anyway, but we struggle for good words and stuff. Firstly, it's all based. It's all wrong. Right. If you know, if you're in the UK, certainly, you know, if you've no longer got work for somebody, there's a really straightforward redundancy process, and you know the so there's no difficulty in removing a, a permanent a permanent um, a person from a role if you've run out of work anyway. Um, so there's no need to do that on a temporary job. Well, the other thing is this whole idea of permanent jobs is completely flawed. They're not permanent. They're basically for as long as the company wants and for as long as the employee wants. And you know if you're hiring people in their twenties and thirties, that you don't seriously expect them to retire or die in service, do you? They're obviously going to leave, and I think what's interesting is, yeah, like the whole industry and and thought and and you know books have been written about you know employee retention, and all of it's wrong. I think you know we we use terms like employee loyalty, like employee loyalty awards. Here's your loyalty award for five years service. So that implies that people who leave are disloyal, which is wrong. I mean, you know, I'm sure you have left jobs. Does that make you a disloyal person? I've left, I left BT. Does that make me disloyal? No. Um, and I think it's just the whole thing is just this false premise that we that we um, recruit people on. And I think it's much more, you know, honest to say like, hey, like come and join us in this role. And like, what do you want to achieve? And how long do you want to stay? And what do you want to achieve? And like, let's have an open conversation about that because there'll probably, there'll probably be a point which will come where this is no longer the best job for you. And there might be a point when you're no longer the best person for us either, yeah, because we might need something else. Yeah. I mean, a great example of that happened at Reward Gateway with a really good friend of mine. Uh, he was my chief product officer, and he, he joined us when we had 10 engineers and no product department. And he built, he, he built 
product and engineering from you know 10 people to 110. It was an incredible job, built the entire product departments, entire internal product infrastructure, you know, all of it. And then it was done. And then actually the next job I needed doing was, it was really knitting that closer to the customer. And that really wasn't what he was great at. But another person, my customer services director, who I wanted to bring, you know, customer service and product, you know, all together under one director. Um, so that was time for me and the chief product officer to, you know, say this is, this is as far as we go together. I'm really grateful for everything you've done, but I need someone else to lead that now. And I think that's a much more honest um, mm. conversation than, than pretending that people, jobs are forever and then calling people disloyal if they leave or when they leave. Sure. Yeah, interesting. I, I, I've written a bit over the past year about decentralization of work or the change in relationship between what would normally be employer employee to different dynamics this is probably an sort of extension of what we're talking about here where actually we say people as they become more specialized may come in for specific types of work over time they might not have a permanent employer they might have multiple companies for whom they're working at any one time let's take the search example let's say that 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 job was required for multiple businesses at a time you might run that alongside each other now from an employee engagement point of view what's the challenge there like if, if organizations are changing where perhaps the idea that you would normally or previously have had 200 permanent members of staff and perhaps now you have a core team of 50 but you bring in specialists for certain projects how does that change the relationship between the way people work i think it's all i think i think everything you've just said unfortunately is kind of just it reinforces how the fact all of our language is wrong you know your core team of permanent employees and then contractors but the core team are not permanent like they're not going to be there forever they're not permanent Right. So the problem with it at the moment is we think of contractors as flaky people who are only half committed, who get paid a fortune, and then they come in and they vanish and they leave the project half and half done. That's that's one option. And the other option is people that are here for life, unless we sack them or unless they leave, in which case they're disloyal. Right? Mm. <laughs> the truth is both of them are wrong. Yeah. We 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 need to have people, I think, on open ended contracts. Yeah. So like I don't know when this is gonna end. Yeah. But I know it will end, yeah. right? It has to end unless one of us dies. Like, and I hope that doesn't happen. So it's going to end. And what we need to do is, but it's open-ended because we don't know when. Yeah, like, so if I ask you, Ollie, to come and join me in a project, I don't know how long it's going to take, right? And I don't know. And, and also maybe halfway through it, you'll find some other amazing project we want you to do and some other thing. So let's have an, an open-ended relationship, yeah, with fair terms for both parties, yeah, so that, you know, if we think it's time to end, you're not dumped and you can't pay your mortgage, yeah? So we've got to have fair terms around it, uh, and we keep having an, an ongoing, honest discussion about, like, you know, are you doing a job that you love, and are you adding great value to the organization, and are you the right person to be in this role? And that's really what I think we need to be doing rather than this binary idea of core permanence flaky contractors yeah. you know which is not neither of which is helpful or true yeah we need a new taxonomy as well so we do we need, that, yeah, we, need, we need a whole i mean most of our language about work is you know from 100 years ago and it's kind of useless really now um yeah. you know but i mean i mean we've all gateways i don't know fuller it's probably got uh, 440 staff it's probably got at least a couple of hundred who are under 35 yeah now, what do we think? So when, how long do we think they're going to stay? They're going to stay, I don't know, three, four, five years, maybe. But I know some people in reward. Like as a guy, uh, there's a guy who ran product, a guy called Ross, ran product for only about 18 months. Now, some people might think, oh, 18 months, that's a disaster. I, I think about him. I think, wow, he really moved us on because he was shit hot at one 
narrow niche of product. Like he was, re- he was the master of it. And we were, we were dead in the water on it. Yeah. And he moved us on like 20 years in that 18 months. And then he was done. And he said, I'm leaving. I'm going somewhere else. And I don't look on, I don't look at him mm. and think, well, he was a mistake. I look at him and think, thank fuck, fuck we got him at the right time because he really yeah. made it really made an impact. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because it comes down to like the whole, it even comes down to like, you know, like long-term incentive plans and, and share ownership. And I'm a bit, I'm a huge advocate of employee share ownership. So I've always had 5% of reward gateway owned by all staff. I've always believed in, in all employee share ownership. So that share program has paid out three times. It's just, it's just about to pay out now because reward gateway was just sold last week. So, you know, over the three times shared, I don't know, 30, 40 million pounds between employees, you know, meaningful impacts on, on, on everyone's life. Huge fan of that. But I know in my in my second employee share plan, um, if you left, you lost your shares. Because we thought at that time that was the right thing to do. You know, you've left. But I learned it's the wrong thing to do because it's it's, it's just a golden handcuff. And it doesn't matter what color handcuffs are, they're handcuffs. You do not want to have people handcuffed to their role when the time has actually passed for them to leave. And I saw that firsthand. I saw people who were tired, burnt out, bored, needed a new challenge, but they couldn't leave because they were waiting for our next sale. Yeah. And, you know, having, you know, just done a a sale last week, I was, you know, I've got to see the whole shareholder register and I was looking down the shareholder register, nearly 500 shareholders in RG and, you know, many names of people who left or left two, three years ago. And it was, I was really nice. They played, just because they're not there on the finish line or this particular finish line doesn't mean they didn't make a meaningful contribution. And I think, you know, people think that business or is, is like some sort of like uh, race where if you leave the race, you're, you know, you're a failure. But maybe it's more like a kind of relay race or something where, you know, it takes a, like a lot of people to like pass the baton from one to the next to get you to, you know, where you want to get to. That's a nice analogy. Um, and yeah, last question, you, you mentioned the, the, the business has sold three times. Each time, or well, certainly the first two, I'm not sure about the most recent one, but to, to, to private equity. So describe what made you choose that route. Um, and for those who aren't as familiar with the nuances of, of private equity, just explain perhaps and in simple terms what the benefits of that are versus you know some other type of acquisition or, or venture capital, for example. Yeah. So yeah. So it's just sold. It's, yeah. It's just sold to its third private equity owner um, now, um, just last week. So essentially, there are there are three ways that I know that you can sell your sell your business. You can you can sell to private equity. You can sell to trade, which means you're selling to another business, you know, a competitor or someone else in, that's in an adjacent market or someone wants to acquire you, or you can list on a stock exchange. So listing on a stock exchange is quite rare and is a pain in the ass and you know I have no experience of it. So take that one out to one side. Um selling to a competitor or you know another organization, yeah, you can do that. Uh it you know it normally means that you're leaving, yeah. Um, because essentially another company is gonna have control and it will often mean, you know, that there's gonna be they're going to execute a whole load of synergies, we call it, which essentially means, you know, deleting the departments in your business that they've already got to create a lot of cost savings. So trade sales are generally the end of the road for your your independent, you know, brand and company and vision and stuff, uh, which is fine if that's what you want. Private equity um, is interesting because 
And there's, there's several types of private equity. Private equity tends to get quite a bad name in the press. And the reason for that is there are two, the, 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 well, there's a, there's a number of different types of P market and, and two of them get the most press. They're the two, the two extremes. The, the bottom end of the market is turnaround, which is essentially where a small, it's a, it's a very tiny niche market. It's it's a tiny part of the overall industry, but they buy bust businesses and then they either milk them for the last few million you know, they can or attempt to fix them. So, you know, someone like Hilco that's a huge, you know, really active in retail, bought things like Woolworths, HMV, Comma, all that kind of stuff, always gets bought by Hilco. They're just really great at running closing down sales, yeah, and, and squeezing the last millions out of the, the brand and then selling off the fixes. Gets loads of press because essentially, you know, a business collapsing is dramatic, therefore it gets on the news. At the other extreme, why I kind of call, you know, the really, really big league private equity, people like CVC, Carlisle Group, they buy businesses where you know they're really really big. Maybe the growth has really slowed in the marketplace. Let's say um, like when Carlisle bought or CBC bought um, Virgin Active Health Club, the growth's kind of gone out. So the only way they can get profits to grow is to really really cut costs. Again, that tends to get pressed because you're buying a big well-known consumer brand often, and you're going to make a lot of cuts to do it. In the middle, and the part of private equity that I've always worked in is what you call mid-market and lower mid-market growth private equity. It gets almost no press attention at all because we're not that dramatic. Yeah, So essentially, growth PE finds businesses that are often but not always founder, operated, and owned, and they're growing, and it buys them, and then it sells them five years later when they're bigger. And what's interesting about PE is, or mid-market PE, is they can't run businesses. So they're backing you to run your business. You, or if you really want to leave because you want to retire, you a management team that you found or a new CEO that you found. So what's in, because they, they're backing a management team or they're backing a founder to carry on growing the business, they, they need you to have equity in that business. So what, what you generally do is you, you kind of sell half your stakeholding so you get some money off the table, um, but you keep half your stakeholding. And then they'll actually they'll give you some more called sweet equity to incentivize you and the people around you, the management team around you or, or staff if you want um, to kind of grow the business. So P is really interesting because if you think and if you've been running your business for a while, you're cash generative, you're making profits, you have to be cash generative to be interested to PE. Um, so if you're, you're cash generative, you're making profits and you think, oh, no, I'd, I'd like to get some capital out for myself, but also but I'm not done yet. I want to carry on my journey. I want to, I want to make this business you know, 10 times bigger Then private equity is a really um, great option. And the big difference between PE and VC, VC invests in early stage unproven businesses ones that are not making money yet, but are burning cash. So VC money goes into the company's bank account and the company uses it to pay the losses while it grows and hopefully gets to profitability. PE does not invest in in businesses that are not proven yet and are not generating cash. It invests its later stage finance. It invests in businesses that are already making money, already generating cash and are on a growth cycle. And the big difference of PE is the money does not go into the company's bank account. It goes into the shareholder's bank account. So that's the really big difference in PE and VC. So in VC, you're investing in a business. In private equity, you're actually buying a business or you're buying half a business typically. So what's next? Yeah, I know you mentioned Tenzing a few times. I know somebody who's within the Sherpa scheme there and you work closely with him and uh, the other Sherpas, uh, mentoring, also advising them in their roles at helping grow the businesses which Tenzing have, have, have bought. So, yeah, so I work for Tenzing Private Equity, uh, brands all about mountaineering, so you know all of our 
words of mountaineering. So my Sherpa team, it's a mountaineering um, analogy, is um, embedded in our companies to help them grow. So my, my job, I'm entrepreneur in residence, so my job is to try try and help our companies to grow. Um, so I'm supporting our CEOs and their management teams. Uh, so I've just, I'm just... I'm just at the end of a process of trebling the size of my Sherpa team, which has been the biggest recruitment piece I've ever done personally. So um, that's been that's been intense. I've done a lot, an awful lot of interviews over the last two months. Uh, uh, so that's really exciting. But what's next for me professionally? You know, I just I just love working with nice people, and I guess you know I'm fortunate enough to have you know you know achieved financial financial stability from my earlier business work. So I guess now I kind of just I get the privilege of being able to just do what I personally value. So I think through the Sherpa program and the rest of the uh, work I do at, at PE, we're kind of you know we're, I'm hopefully building the next generation of C-suite talent, and I you know and I hope to build them in a really you know help develop them in a really great way with you know kindness, ethics, integrity um, is, is really core values that they have in them because I kind of think they are really core values that underpin success. And you know, I get to work, I get to hire really amazing, wonderful people, and then I get to hopefully do my best at trying to nurture them and help them as much as I can. And then I guess you know my tiny legacy in my little corner of the world in in one small PE firm in London will be you know leaving behind. Um, a group of people that you know are, are really, really good, and and behave in a really great way. Yeah, and what, like one other one other legacy a book is always a legacy, and I'm, we haven't really had time to talk about it today, but it is worth a, worth a read if you're interested in employee engagement. It's called Build It, the Rebel Playbook for World Class Employee Engagement. So, Glenn, look, I really appreciate all the time you've given to us today and all your thoughts. Thanks so much again, and uh, I'm sure we'll chat again soon. Thanks, Ollie. It's been really nice. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Glenn Elliott. If you enjoyed that, please check out some of the other episodes of Take My Advice. I'm not using it and have a read of my newsletter, Future Work Life on Substack. Links are in the show notes. More quality guests next week. Until then, have a good one.